Hey, everybody. Welcome to Rare Bird Radio. This is Karen Stefano, author of the memoir, What a Body Remembers. And with me today is the author, Liz Scott, author of the memoir, This Never Happened. Liz, how are you? I'm great, Karen. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's it's my pleasure. Having read your book, I am a huge fan, so it's it's my honor. Oh, that's so nice of you. <laughs> and I, we cannot uh, start anything else in this podcast until we give a loving shout out to the awesome Renee Denfeld, who was kind enough to introduce us. Uh, so, hey, Renee. Thank you. Hey, Renee. Thank you, Renee. <laughs> Bless your heart. Yeah, she gave me a wonderful blurb on my book, for which I'm eternally grateful to. Yeah, she's very generous. She also blurbed my book uh, very, very generously. And she's she's an amazing human being, an amazing writer. I can't wait to read The Butterfly Girl, which I think comes out in October, right? October 1st. Yeah. And uh, so anyone who's listening who enjoyed The Child Finder, this is a sequel. So we will get to see more of our character Naomi. So a uh, little short uh, uh, commercial for Renee Denfeld here. <laughs> uh, totally. I couldn't agree more with that endorsement. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so Liz, I wanted to start uh, by giving our listeners a little taste about your memoir uh, by reading a couple of lines from a couple of your other blurbs. And one uh, says, uh, Liz Scott works hard to excavate the truth of her life, overturning each insane interaction with her parents, looking for answers, looking for meaning. And another one uh, calls the book a remarkable hopscotch through memory and memorabilia to understand how the past shapes one's present. And if I were uh, telling a friend about this book and I had to describe it in three words, I think I would say it's a family mystery. And if I gave myself four words (laughs) to describe it, I would call it an unflinching family mystery. Um, why don't you tell our listeners in as many words as you like uh, what you think this book is about? I will try to do that. Um, I want to say I really love the word unflinching. Um, I, I have a little uh, post-it note on my uh, computer that says, be brave. So mm. I'm always trying to, to be unflinching. So thank you for that. Um, yes. Yeah, so um this it was such a complicated family. We never met any relatives. Both of my parents were estranged from their families, and we never knew why. Um, my mother seriously qualified as a narcissistic personality disorder. My father abandoned us when I was about 10, um, and we didn't have any contact with him. So um, we, I was just kind of flailing out there in the world, I would say. So um, I think I've spent most of my life either unconsciously or more as I became an adult consciously trying to get some answers and find the truth. I guess kind of truth has been a guiding principle for me. Uh, 
yeah, having having read the book, I uh, I see that, and it's interesting you share about your poster note on your computer that says "Be brave," and back to the uh, the word unflinching. Being brave uh, really is synonymous, I think, with being honest and honest about yourself too. Don't do you agree with that? I totally agree with that, and I think. Um, my mother took, well, the, the kind way of saying it is that she um, stretched the truth. She was a, <laughs> yeah, a prevaricator. She didn't, you know, the, the truth really meant nothing to her. So um, I have taken a kind of almost extreme stance toward that principle. And, um, you know, I, I just, it's, it's, it's one of the highest values to me. So yes, I totally agree with you. Being honest about myself, seeking the truth about myself, however um, unpleasant that may be at times. <laughs> right. And it, and if if you are honest about yourself, it it most definitely is unpleasant. Um, most definitely. Most of the times. <laughs> most definitely. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, it's it's interesting. Uh, just I was literally two pages into the book. Um, when uh, I found myself writing notes in the margin, uh, I can so relate to this. And uh, just in these early two pages, we get the sense that you're that we kind of need to know about our family always through sort of a gentle filter. Um, uh, when I finished the book, I, I sent you an email saying, I can so relate to this. Um, I had a great relationship with my mom, but her mom, my grandmother, my, my mom was very tight-lipped about her because my mother had a really fucked up childhood. Mm, yeah. And she would always like apologize for her mother um yeah. always saying you know oh, she did the best she could yeah. and that that's just always been something so fascinating to me both um in just you know in humanity in general and then in my own family in particular um you know my mother's need to when she would tell me at my pushing some of the things that she experienced in her childhood, she would always, you know, she would, she'd give me a tidbit of information and, and she'd say, but, you know, but Aunt Dot, which is what I called my grandmother growing up, I thought this woman was my aunt until I was uh, just about to go away to college. <laughs> Amazing. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, she'd always say, but Aunt Dot did the best she could. And so that your book made me think about that a, a lot. So I just, uh, that's just, uh, just a little share. And I, my take is that I identified with so much of this book and if I can identify with it, I'm sure so many other readers will too. Um, I hope so. I hope yeah. so. And I want to say I'm a, I'm a psychologist and also, and, um, I find that whole, you know, they did the best they could thing comes up a lot. And um, I mean, I, I don't know if we have time for a little story here. Yeah, Do, yeah. Okay. So um, I had a, cl a client that I'd worked with, a, a gentleman, an elderly gentleman that I'd worked with on and off, came across my book somehow and um, came wanted to talk to me about it. 
And um, he's a person that always had this, my parents did the best they could, even though he had a extremely dysfunctional upbringing. I mean, extremely. And he never could get in touch with the pain of that, never would al- allow himself to. And always use that, that sort of, you know, excuse. They did the best they could. So he came in to talk to me about my book. And um, he said, one of the comments he had was, um, well, I just didn't think some of the things you were writing about were enough to warrant a book. <laughs> That's and, Yeah. And I, and I, you know, I kind of, um, it was a funny experience, Karen, because I, I instantly I had the sense that it really wasn't about me. He was talking about himself mm-hmm. and his, his inability to have empathy for me and my experience was really a projection of his own lack of empathy for himself. Mm. as a child and so I managed to say that to find a way to say that to him and he uh started crying I've been I'd never seen that before he'd never gotten in touch with the pain of his past he was in his 80s and he'd never never gotten in touch with the pain of his past before and um had used that they did the best they could thing to keep himself distant from that so it was quite an amazing experience and um I feel actually sad for people like your mom who couldn't let themselves see the truth to use that word right. again. Right. Right. Yeah. I, I see it. I mean, it's, it's a, it's, I guess a, a defense mechanism. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, well, thank you for sharing that. That's, uh, that's, that's, that's interesting. And mm-hmm. I'm glad that, um, as painful, obviously, as it was for this person, I'm glad that he was able to have that insight. Me too. Yeah. <laughs> Me too. Yeah. So, so since we're talking about, uh, uh, obviously, we're going to talk mostly about your book, but we're also I want to talk to you a little bit about as your work as a psychologist. Um, in chapter nine, you talk about the kind of universal need for parental approval. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to get your take on that, uh, both in terms of your own personal experience and as a psychologist, have you treated patients where parents, uh, where their parents either, either consciously or unconsciously withheld approval as a form of manipulation and what does that do to a child both in terms of childhood and then in their adulthood well first of all yes of course I have and I think um you know I'll cop to that myself as a parent that I'm sure there are times when I withheld approval certainly not intentionally but you know I mean, manipulation sort of implies a, a, a willful, you know, mechanism. But, you know, if you want to try to um, influence your child's behavior and you think that in some way uh, withholding an approval of a certain some aspect might influence their behavior in another direction, you know, I can cop, cop to that. But, I mean, I think it's a pretty common experience. And I think that all children need to sense that they're validated and approved of by their parents. And I think that it's a step in the way to what we need to do ultimately, which is that the source of approval needs to be internal inside ourselves. 
um, ultimately as adults, I mean. But right. in, in order to build that muscle, I think we need to first see ourselves reflected in that way in our parents' eyes. So without having that, you know, it's a bunch of flailing to try to, to, try to come up with a strong sense of self. Yeah, yeah, um, it, it is. And I think flailing is, is the right word to use. And, you know, we all will, whatever our issue is, we're going to flail until we get uh, some proper guidance. Right. Um, yeah. Um, I want to talk a little bit about, uh, I guess, craft uh, in, in this book, uh, This Never Happened. You jump around in time and you do it a lot mm-hmm. and, it, and it works. And I wanted to ask you what, I mean, if any, are your craft rules for shifting back and forth in time? Well, um, I think it was less a matter of craft rules and more a matter of that's the way my mind works. Mm -hmm. And that I think, frankly, that's the way memory works anyway, is that Mm. I don't think memory is linear, you know. Yeah, well put, well put, yeah. We we jump back and forth. And if you combine that with the fact that I have a very short attention span, (laughs) um, that I would kind of just do these bits, you know, something would occur to me or some memory would come up or some sense I had and I would write that piece. And um, I did that at first without having any idea what the order would be. And then trying to come up with the order was a really interesting sort of craft puzzle. I mean, I, I think I've got, I don't know, 70 something short chapters. Don't worry, readers. Some, some of them only have one word. Yes. They're, they're very brief readers. They're, they're very brief. They're very brief. <laughs> but I, I ultimately put each, the title of each chapter on an index card and laid those 75 index cards out on my living room floor and just shifted them around over and over again. And I'm not, I'm not, I don't focus on narrative arc that much as much as I focus on emotional arc. So I tried to create an emotional arc in the story and the, 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 the flat, the pieces, some of the pieces are sort of flashbacks to support the emotional arc, if that makes sense. Uh, Yeah. Having read the book, it, it absolutely makes sense. And I, I think maybe it, I, I, you know, because I was asking myself, this is a lot of shifting back and forth in time. And that's that can be a tricky thing to do. And it absolutely works. And I wonder if part of the reason that it works is that they are short chapters. And, uh, you know, each chapter has its own emotional punch. And then, yeah, strung strung together. Uh, I think that that's a good way to articulate it. There's less of a narrative arc, but very much an emotional. Arc. Well, I'm gl- yes, and I'm very glad to hear that it works for you. Of course, I was concerned about that, you know, because it it made sense to me because it's my story. But um, of course, I was concerned that it wouldn't be too confusing for people. Yeah, no, not at all. And, you know, and of course, uh, for most of the chapters, you have a, a time stamp mm-hmm. and so that that always helps like chapter 11 is the phone call parentheses 1986 and so that you know obviously that's 
uh, a good marker. And a few of the chapters, like chapter 10, it's just called deep cover and there is no time stamp, but you know, we're anchored enough that we can, we can follow along for sure. Mm-hmm. Good. Um, uh, so, so similar to that, um, you also use family photos and uh, fully uh, legible photos of correspondence. Um, at the end of chapter 13, you have a photo of your childhood letter, a childhood letter to your father. And in the margin, I wrote, holy shit. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, that, really, that really got me. Yeah. Um, uh, but again, sort of from a craft perspective, you're very effective in your use of photos of correspondence. And how did you come to make that choice to use these photographs interspersed within uh, the the narrative? Yeah, well, um, one of the other things about me, besides my short attention span, is that I've got a very bad memory. And um, I only have a handful of concrete memories from my childhood. Um, So when I decided to start working on this book, I searched around for things to help me, like photographs. And um, I don't have a lot of photographs because, well, because my family was too weird. They didn't keep them. Um, So... I found what I could find. And then um, my father died in, uh, oh gosh, I don't know, maybe around, maybe about 20 years ago, 15, 20 years ago. And his wife sent me, I have a chapter of some of the ridiculous things that she sent to me after he died, just really insane, you know, receipts from gross drugstores and parking tickets and, you know, things that I don't know why anybody would want. But she also included the correspondence between my parents um, after they got divorced and those two letters that I'd written my father after he left our family, which I didn't even remember that I'd written. Um, And then when my mother died in 2005, I found the love letters, the one that she got from some unknown person before she was married and the two that she got from my father um, before they were married. So I found those in her belongings after she died. Um, so, um, those things since there's, there's such a vague sense of my childhood since we were so disconnected from everything. And since I have such a poor memory, um, there's nothing that seemed to anchor. There was no real sense of ballast. So these, um, artifacts kind of gave me a sense of ballast. I would say, you know, they were concrete, they were they were objects, <laughs> and um, so it it really helped me to include them in the book. Yeah, um, I I like the word ballast, and uh, and it's also you know when I when I wrote my memoir when I was working on initial drafts, I went back and for example uh, looked at my uh, journal uh, from. Uh, 1984 at Mm. uh, the time of my assault, which is a big part of uh, my memoir. And it, 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 you know, it would, like you say, it was something concrete. Yes. And, um, and it was a, it was a source 
for fact checking my own memory. Yes. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, and in my case, it was kind of horrifying because I, I saw how uh, unwilling I was even in my own diary to acknowledge things that I was feeling. Uh, uh, but, but, it, but, you know, again, it, like uh, it, it, things like that and a few photos from that time, they served as a, you know, a concrete uh, verification, for lack of a better word. For, Absolutely. For yeah. um, I want to shift gears a little bit, and um, I want to talk to you about forgiveness. Okay. At the, at the very end of your first chapter, you say, if there is sense to be made, let me make it. And while we're at it, do let me forgive. Maybe. I guess. That's what I'm supposed to do, right? <laughs> and later in the book, you do talk more like you say, I, I can't remember, you phrase it much more artfully than this, but something to the effect that it's kind of your life project to mm -hmm. forgive. And so I, I want to I ask you, do you feel now, uh, sitting here today with the work I'm sure you've done on yourself that I know you've done on yourself from reading the book, uh, do you forgive your parents? Well, the, um, the short answer is yes. And, um, uh, if if I were st if they were still alive and I were in relationship with them, I'm not sure I could say that. Um, you know, my mother was just <laughs> infuriating to be with. She was just absolutely positively infuriating to be with. And so, uh, you know, if I had no contact with her for weeks at a time, I could find a place of, you know, grace and forgiveness. But it didn't last very long. Um, so the fact that they're gone and that distance um, is part of the part of what is has helped me in my process. But there's also this, you know, the more abstract concept of distance. If you just pull the lens way, way back on anything and think about think about my parents as children mm -hmm. and, you know, what kind of messed up families they must have come from. I mean, I don't know the details, obviously, but what they, the, the pain that they inflicted on me and my sister was, I'm sure, a result of pain that was inflicted on them. And so, I mean, I think pulling that lens back, not only in distance from my time in relationship, in actual relationship with them, but just kind of my vision of them has really helped me. And it's, it's a, I, I see them both, particularly my mother, as actually very, I find it very sad and very tragic, her story, because I think she had, she was smart. They were both super smart and she was very, very talented and very creative and tortured, just mm -hmm. tor tortured. So um, it's, it's hard for me to have any anger when I'm, when I'm aware of that, you know. So I guess I have forgiven them. Well, and, and you, and your, your mother, I mean, even on the page, um, she's, she's very challenging as a character and that, 
it, you know, it made me, and I'm, I guess every reader will be a little bit different, but it made me obviously really empathetic toward you um, mm. as the child of this person. But I also definitely felt some empathy for her um, as messed up as some of her conduct was, uh, you know, I, I've been on this planet long enough to appreciate that people uh, do criminal acts, they do negligent acts, they do all kinds of horrible acts, but those you know, those aren't, those aren't just out of the blue. They come Not just out of the blue. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Um, so, um, prior to your parents' death, uh, did you ever engage in what's called, um, forgiveness work as a, as a spiritual practice? Did you, did you, you know, I, I assume you're familiar with that term. Mm-hmm, I am. Um, uh, I, I would say no. <laughs> I, I think that um, for me, it was more um, a matter of trying to f- focus on finding my equilibrium. Um, forgiveness seemed like a, 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 a luxury I couldn't afford. Um, it was more, it felt more, um, uh, I don't know, primal to me. Like I would like spend some time with my mother and I would just be so, so upset and flummoxed and, you know, churned up and all that stuff that I had to do a fair amount of work to get myself centered again. And I mean, maybe it's sort of in the long column of forgiveness, maybe down at the bottom of that column, finding some like uh, some distance again, some like, oh, well, um, um, this is who she is. And I know that about her. And don't let me be surprised when she when she behaves the way she always does. So um, but I, I think I think. It was there was too much kind of psychological emotional noise mm. for me to really focus on forgiveness, which I think I don't know. I think it takes a little bit more space. Yes, that's that's. Uh, I I think you hit the nail on the head with that one. Uh, to cliche out on you, but um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, you you I find that you, too. Do you think so too? Yeah, a- absolutely, and um, sadly. Um, I've had to engage forgiveness in forgiveness work in my life. Um, uh, in my prior marriage, uh, uh, there was an infidelity, um, and I lost all trust in my husband after learning of it. And uh, I had always thought, and I and I share this in my memoir. I'd always thought that I was the type of woman where if someone uh, did that to me, I would just like basically hit an eject button and that, you know, that spouse or significant Mm -hmm. other would just be out of my life. And that's not what happened. And I ended up staying in the marriage for, uh, a good six more years, uh, but never, never got the trust back. And you can imagine how difficult that is. And I worked and worked and worked, um, uh, my, you know, my bookshelves still contain <laughs> all the books on forgiveness and doing the forgiveness yeah. work. And 
it is hard. It is, it is, um, it is not easy. And uh, everyone who uh, pushes forgiveness work emphasizes that, you know, uh, you know, you're not, you're not punishing them by not forgiving, you're punishing yourself. And I think, um, I'm probably going to mess this up, but I think Anne Lamont said, uh, keep staying angry at someone is like, uh, taking rat poison, uh, ingesting rat poison yourself and expecting the rat to die. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, um, I know I botched that, but (laughs) I do. (laughs) And, and that, and that is what it is, but it's like, it's, you know, reaching that state of grace, uh, to use your word is, you know, it's easier said than done. It's easier said than done. And you, you use the word pushing, um, there. And I think, I, I don't think that's a river that can be pushed. You know, I think, you know, maybe, when you were working so hard to forgive your ex-husband, the the agenda was trying to find a way to stay in something that really wasn't great for you to stay in. Yeah. You know, and so it's like the agenda gets in the way of, of, I don't know what I'm saying exactly, but I'm not sure forgiveness is something that can be pushed or forced. Uh, Yeah. I think I learned that it, couldn't be. (laughs) (laughs) But P.S. P.S. I think it's very easy for all of us to say, oh, if my husband did that to me, I would be out like that. And it's and and we I think we all stay in relationships longer than we think we should looking back. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, Yeah. Um, Anyone who hasn't. uh, Yeah. Count yourself lucky. Um, I want to shift back to what we were talking about uh, a few minutes ago and uh, you know, the need to say they did the best they could. They did the best they could. Um, Your dedication says for my parents, bless their hearts. (laughs) Can you kind of unpack that dedication for us a little bit? Sure. Um, so I guess that's a pretty common, well-worn way of talking about somebody that has a little bit of a sort of sarcastic, I guess, edge to it. I don't know if that's the right word, but, or ironic or something. Um, I, I mean, I, I wanted to, um, it, it's a weird word, sort of thank them in a way at the same time, acknowledging their um, dysfunction and their their really severe limitations, and the bless their hearts part is the acknowledgement of their limitations. Got it. That's <laughs> um, yeah. That's that's fair. Without <laughs> an, an acknowledgement, and yet without you know, apologizing. Right. I don't want to apologize and I don't want to whitewash. And, you know, I, if I just said for my parents, period, that would have felt very false to me. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And you don't, you don't whitewash it at all in this, in this book. Um, you also, uh, I used a cliche a, a few minutes ago, whenever I do that, uh, in any recorded setting, I just, you know, (laughs) 
want to hit myself, but, um, uh, but in your book, you do the opposite and you have so much really unique, vivid imagery. Oh. Um, the, just one, I'm going to pull out just one example, um, but I could go on and on, but at the end of chapter five, uh, you're talking about getting off a plane and you say, so me and my bloody Mary addled legs and my flip-flopping stomach to plane walk on the jello ground of the jetway into the terminal. <laughs> and um, I just, I love that. And I underline that um, walk on the jello ground and uh, it's so beautiful. And, and you, you come up with these, uh, uh, these images, uh, that I've never heard before. They're totally fresh. They're totally new. And I wanted to ask you what you, what fuels that for you in your writing? Is it, is it reading poetry? Reading poetry seems to kind of feed me a little bit. Um, but I, I wanted to see what, what fuels it for you. Well, first of all, that is like the best compliment. I'm just <laughs> really, thank you so much. Um, I'm not a great, po I'm not a very educated or good poetry reader. So I, I mean, I, I, I say that with my tail between my legs, but um, I had the great fortune of studying with um, Tom Spanbauer. I don't know if you know about Tom. Yeah. Um, so he's sort of a local celebrity here. He's not teaching anymore, but um, he had a, a program called Dangerous Writers. Ooh, I like that. Isn't that so, so great? Yeah. So yeah. it was a whole sort of, um, he came out of Columbia. He studied with Gordon Lish and um, brought this kind of orientation to Portland. And so we would meet every Saturday morning in his basement. And um, one of Tom's great, uh, he had wonderful precepts that I, that I really hold on to. He would, um, for instance, say, when you're writing, imagine that you're on your second or third martini and you're sitting at a bar telling, talking to your best friend. I like it, yeah. Um, so there was that. And he used this phrase about where he would say, I want you to burn the language, burn the language. And so um, it sort of gave us freedom to uh, use words and phraseology and syntax in ways that are not standard and just play around with that. I mean, he really, really encouraged us to do that, to play in that way. So, and I'm in a fabulous writing group and most of us are um, alumna from that orientation. So we really support each other in that finding sort of uh, original language or um, we don't want something to sound like received text, you know, like you've heard it a million times. Mm -hmm. And um, so we're, we're all very interested in finding ways to be as specific and as sort of visceral as we can in our language. Yeah, um, going back to post-it notes on computers, I think I'm going to put that one on mine. Burn yeah. the language. Burn the language. That. Isn't that burn. great? Yeah. yeah. Burn oh, burn my it. God. I love that. Isn't that great? Yeah, it's absolutely great. Um, uh, I'm. I'm checking the time and we're, uh, we're getting toward the end. Uh, I have so many questions here for you. I have to, it's, I'm uh, panicking, uh, trying to choose which ones I should, I should uh, focus on. 
uh, and I'm going to go with a frivolous one uh, and ask you, uh, do you watch the, the show Big Little Lies? I do. Ha- have you been through season two? I have. Okay. So I, um, and this is just apropos of nothing, but I just wanted to ask you a- about it. I love the therapist um, and uh, and watching the show, I mean, I have a great therapist. I, I love him. I love him to death. Uh, uh, and I describe him as someone who has an iron fist who will punch you in the gut if need be. But it's <laughs> always it's always with a velvet glove. Oh, wonderful. wonderful. You're yeah. lucky. You're lucky. You're very yeah. lucky. Yeah. But I just I had to bring it up since you're a psychologist. And um, I, because I don't like I watched it the first time and didn't give, give it any thought. And then I watched uh, both seasons one and two again. And I just love how this therapist in season one, she's almost completely in darkness. And then she gets more light shed on her. And then by season two, she's fully visible. I and, didn't even notice that. <laughs> oh yeah. 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 Well, I didn't notice it the first time I watched and uh but i did but i did the second time and so i just uh wanted to share that observation with you and uh um and kind of and just geeked out over that uh that's so cool (laughs) yeah yeah um so anyway apropos of of nothing um let me let me close with this question um I mean, it's unfair to characterize your memoir as just like a mother-daughter memoir, because obviously your father is so much a a part of your story. But off the top of your head, what would you say are your favorite mother-daughter stories? Um, Short stories, fiction, memoir? uh... Well, um, I loved... um... Um, Mary Carr, you know, Liars Club, um, so much. I mean, one of the things I loved about that book so much, I mean, your mother was a lunatic. Um, Absolutely. But but Mary Carr seemed to have such um, an open heart in telling that story. And she seemed to have actually a lot of affection for her mother in spite of her mother's eccentricity, to put it mildly. Um, So I, I really... I think that one stands out to me as a mother-daughter story. Um, I'm trying to think. This is where my bad memory comes in, you know. <laughs> yeah. um, if I had a multiple choice if question, I could probably answer it. Right. If I were to pretend, uh, <laughs> yes, right. Down on a white boy, you'd go, oh, yeah. Right, exactly. Yeah. Um, uh, well, Mar- I mean, Mary Carr, I mean, good answer, Liz, good answer, <laughs> okay, you've, already su- you've already succeeded. Um, yeah, and I, I, you know, I read Mary Carr, obviously, I don't think I know a writer who, who hasn't, um, and as I was thinking about my own answer to that question, as I was jotting down some questions for you in preparation for this podcast I thought what are my favorite mother-daughter stories and my kind of go-to and these are these are fiction uh is Janet Fitch uh White Oleander Mm -hmm. uh I've read that book about at least 25 times no exaggeration and then Amy Tan's uh stories uh you know because they're just they're just loaded with that juicy 
layered, complicated, mother-daughter conflict. And yeah, I mean, if we were to like stop and think and, uh, you know, put our minds to it, we could come up with many, many, many more. I'm sure I'll have a lot of great answers when we get off. <laughs> after we get after we after finished, <laughs> right? So, um, I, and I, I wanted to step back um, a, a moment ago. You you talked about uh, this great workshop that you did, and I just wanted to clarify: you live in Portland, so that's I do. So that's something that's an option for people who are in Portland. Well, uh, Tom is not teaching any longer, but um, there are there. It's Portland has has got just a very vibrant, fantastic very big writing community and there are there are writing groups all over the place it's just it's a wonderful wonderfully supportive vibrant community it's great it's a great place to be a writer yeah and it has the most awesome bookstore in the world pals which i live right across the street from oh my god you must be like flat broke flat broke (laughs) i would just i if i lived across the street from that place i go into um you know, like my, my local independent bookstores and, and, um, you know, cause it's just so fun to go in and browse and it's like my happy place. And I'm like, you will not spend money today, Karen, <laughs> you will not spend money today. And I never, ever succeed, but totally, you know, that's, that's, that's us. That's the writing life. So Liz, as we wrap up this podcast, uh, uh, other than Powell's in Portland, um, where can our listeners buy their copy of This Never Happened? Um, let's see. Well, you can definitely buy it on Amazon and on Barnes & Noble and on the Powell's website. And um, there are other bookstores that are carrying it. I'm not sure how many independents are, but you can also get it from my publisher. And all of that information, and there are links um, on my website, well, I'll just say the website really quickly. It's www.lizscott.org, lizscott.org. And it has all, all the places where you can buy it and links to those sources. So thank you for that. Okay. No, uh, it's, it's my pleasure. I want people to read this great book. Uh, Liz Scott, author of This Never Happened, thank you so much for joining me today. And uh, I'm, I'm really appreciative of your time. Thank you so much, Karen. I had a wonderful time talking to you.